Chapter 8, Part 1, Roommates In mid-October, Dr. Bevis told me, I have wonderful news. You're being discharged from University Hospital and going back to Sheltering Arms for rehabilitation. I burst into tears. That isn't wonderful. I don't want to leave. I want to stay here. Dr. Bevis patted my shoulder. You've done, we've done all we can for you here, he said. If you need, sorry, you need different therapy now. You'll have a new doctor and I don't want a new doctor. I want you and a new physical therapist. Tommy said, no more, Miss Crab. I blew my nose. Do I have to, I asked. Can I can't I be rehabilitated here? We don't do it here. We can handle only acute cases. Tommy's been here longer than I have, and you aren't kicking him out, I said. Tommy still needs re a respirator. I don't know anybody at Sheltering Arms. You didn't know anybody here when you first came. It is always hard to be the new kid. You'll adjust. I saw that there was no arguing. When do I leave, I asked. This afternoon. The discharge papers are ready. Actually, they have been ready for a couple of days, but Sheltering Arms didn't have a bed for you until now. You've known for two days that I was leaving. Why didn't anyone tell me? Maybe we were afraid you'd make a fuss. I scowled at him, aware that I was making a fuss. They probably won't even paint my toenails, I said. He laughed and went out the door. This time, I could take my belongings with me. My clothes, my books, the new teddy bear were packed in a paper bag. All morning, the nurses stopped by to wish me well. Even Mrs. Crabb came to say goodbye. I know you hated the exercises because they hurt, she said, but someday you'll thank me for doing them. I doubted it. I will miss you, Tommy said, especially your reading to me and your knock-knock jokes, and I'll miss the Lone Ranger. Oh, you can keep the radio, I told him. Think about me every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. No kidding? I get to keep the radio? Sure, my parents can bring me my radio from home. That wasn't true. I didn't have my own radio at home. I listened to the Lone Ranger on the family radio, but in the time I, that we had been together, no one had visited Tommy, for his parents lived hundreds of miles away. They probably didn't know that he wanted a radio at the hospital. I decided Tommy needed to hear the Lone Ranger more than I did. Thanks, he said. I hope you learn to walk again. I looked at his small head protruding from the iron lung. The soft swish swish of the machine had been the background music for our readings, for every conversation, and for the Lone Ranger broadcast. Now I was being released, while my fellow inmate in a prison of paralysis might listen to the swooshing forever.
that was a metaphor. He's in a prison of paralysis. I hope you learn to breathe without a respirator, I told him, and I had never made a more sincere wish. Goodbye, Tonto. Adios, Kimosabi. As I was being transported, transferred from the ambulance to the gurney, Dr. Bevis pinned a yellow rose on my pajama top. For my favorite patient, he said. My lips began to tremble. He said, knock, knock. I, I blinked back my tears. Who's there? You'll, you'll who? You'll be back to walk for me. That's right, I said, as I was lifted into the ambulance. And so she's on her way to sheltering arms. At Sheltering Arms, I was put in a large room with four other girls. Instead of a st sterile white walls and white blankets that I was used to at University Hospital in room 202, but room 202 was full of color and striped blankets and flowered curtains and pictures on the walls. There was even a bookcase filled with books. We each had a hospital bed that could be cranked up so that our heads and shoulders were elevated. This allowed us to see each other, and I quickly became acquainted with my new roommates. Now, I want you to pay attention. She has uh, four roommates, okay? So I want you to think about the characteristics that make up each of her roommates and what stands out about them uh, to you. Dorothy was 14, and she was a cheerful girl with, shy, with a shy, sweet smile. She was sitting in a wheelchair when I arrived, and she waved a welcome. I liked her immediately. I came here from University Hospital, too, she said, on my birthday. I was still paralyzed then from the neck down. Dorothy told me that she had been at Sheltering Arms for two months and was hoping to learn to walk with braces on her legs. Okay, so that's Dorothy. Shirley, who was also 14, was fighting a double problem. She had been born with arms that only, that only straightened halfway. Now, polio had made her situation worse. After seven months at, in the hospital, she still had no movement in her legs. Because of, because of back weakness, she could sit in a wheelchair for only brief periods of time. She also had breathing problems. Renee was a petite, dark-haired, and was 12, like me. I... I'm learning to walk with leg braces and walking sticks, she told me. I'll probably always have to use them unless physical therapy works wonders. Okay, so, so far she's met three of her roommates. And think about how she described them. Stay tuned for part two tomorrow. Okay, we're ready for chapter eight, roommates, part two.
and if you remember, Peg had just met three of her roommates. We had uh, Dorothy, who was 14, cheerful and shy, with a sweet smile, and Shirley, who was 14, and she was fighting a double problem. Remember, her arms didn't straighten all the way. And then there was Renee, who was petite and dark-haired, 12 like Peg. Um, she was hoping to learn to walk with leg braces and walking sticks. And so now we start up with part two of roommates. At the mention of physical therapy, I groaned. I called physical therapy torture time, I said. It isn't bad, so bad, said Renee. At least I'm out of the iron lung. You were in an iron lung, I said. Renee nodded. At University Hospital, I was in one for five months. I was in an iron lung too, said Shirley. So was I, said Dorothy. My hopes for Tommy soared. Maybe he would get out of the iron lung. I looked at the last of my roommates, who was also in a wheelchair. She hadn't said anything. This is Alice, said Dorothy. She's 13. Alice was a sturdy-looking girl with wide eyes and soft curls. Her toes pointed downward, permanently, permanently downward, the drop foot condition that the footboard on my hospital bed was intended to prevent. I asked her, how long that she had been at sheltering arms. Ten years, she said. I gaped at her. Ten years? You've been here since you were three years old? Well, well, said Alice. The genius can subtract. When will you be able to go home, I asked. I am home. Alice lives at sheltering arms, said Renee. Disbelieving, I pressed on. But what about your parents? Don't don't you have a family? My parents, said Alice, don't want me. I stared at her, not knowing what to say. After I'd been here for a few months, the doctor said I could go home, but that I wouldn't get any better, Alice said. I waited. My parents refused to take me. They didn't want an old crippled up blob on their hands for the rest of their lives. I realized she wanted to shock me, and she had succeeded. I was speechless. Renee continued the explanation. Alice comes from a big family, she said. She got polio before the doctors knew about hot packs and muscle stretches. When she didn't get well, her parents were unable to take care of her and all the other kids, too. So she became a ward of the state. I, I, I'm sorry, I said. Don't feel sorry for me, Alice sat, snapped. I like it here. I don't want to leave. If I wouldn't leave if they paid me. I thought about my own parents, and I knew they would never refuse to take me home no matter what condition I was in. For the first time since my paralysis set in, I realized there was something worse than having polio. So what could be worse than having polio? Think about that. Don't look so horrified, Alice said. Dorothy could go home too if there was someone to take care of her. 
I looked nervously around the room. Had another of my roommates been abandoned by her family? Dorothy smiled reassuringly. I live on a farm, she said, and everyone has to work. I can't go home until I can get around by myself because once I'm home, there won't be always be someone to help me. My family can't afford to hire help. I'm learning to put the leg braces on now, so it shouldn't be too much longer. You hope, said Alice. The chip on her shoulder seemed like the size of a fire log, but I didn't blame her for being mad at the world. That right there, the chip on her shoulder, is what they call an idiom. So it isn't, doesn't necessarily mean she has a chip on her shoulder. Just means, like it says, she's mad at the world. I had never thought of myself as a privileged child. My dad sold meat at the Hormel Company. My mother was a homemaker. Grandpa lived, or Grandpa worked in a print shop setting type. Ours was an average middle class family. And now I saw how lucky I was not only to have parents who love me, but parents who were able to care for me and to meet my needs, whatever they might be. I had absolutely no doubt that if the doctor said I could go home, that I would be out the door the next day. And if I ended up a big old clipper, crippled blob, as Alice put it, I shuddered. Even though I knew my parents would always love me and take care of me, I didn't want them to have to. I wanted to go home and return to school like a normal person, and I wanted to go back to University Hospital and walk for Dr. Bevis. I was going to meet my new physical therapist, Mrs. Ballard, the next morning, and I dreaded it. What if she was another Mrs. Crab? Or worse, after hearing Alice's story, I decided I would do everything Mrs. Ballard asked me to do, even if she was the torture champion of all times. So, I want you to think about that. She's getting ready to meet a new physical therapist the next day. Her name is Miss Ballard. So, we're going to compare Miss Ballard to Miss Crab and see if they how they do things. Um, are they the same? Are they different? If they're different, how are they different? And, and how does Peg react based on how they treat her? All right, and then don't forget to focus on uh, Peg's roommates and their characters. Um, her last roommate is quite a character, so um, think about that. Don't forget to write your sentences. Use names, capitalization, punctuation, period.